Welcome to Recovery Devon Podcasts. We're a community interest company working to support mental health recovery in Devon. Our podcasts invite people with ideas of all kinds which explore mental health and what it means to be fully human. Welcome to another Recovery Devon podcast and we're talking today about bereavement, which is a subject that touches just about everybody's life at one point or another. Um, And I'm speaking to some people here in Devon who provide some fabulous services and have also got their own personal experiences of bereavement. So we're just we're just going to chat together and talk about some of the things that in our experience we wish people knew about bereavement and how to support somebody who's grieving um, and also some of the the changes that we'd like to see on what's out there for people who who think they might need a little bit of help. So I'll go around the windows again one at a time. Rosie, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Rosie Dawson and I run Roots Community Enhancement, which is Dawlish and Timmouth and surrounding areas. I'm a mental health nurse and um, I've experienced quite complex loss um, and bereavement myself. So that's what brings me here. Thanks, Rosie. Welcome. Bex, how about you? Hi, I'm Bex Freshton. So I started the um, loss online peer-to-peer support group following the bereavement of my sister and then sadly closely followed by my mum. So it was as a result of my own personal experiences. Thank you. Welcome. And Sarah, how about you? Hello. Yes, my name's Sarah Bugler and I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and bereavement counsellor. And I'm also here today to talk about my own experiences of bereavement within my own family. Thank you. So it's a bit difficult to know how to invite people to talk about something as complex as bereavement. Does anybody feel like they want to share a story of bereavement just to get us started? Yeah, go ahead, Rosie. I guess um, complex bereavement for me is that that loss that doesn't instantly have you crying and mourning as you believed you should and you know difficult relationships and and difficulties throughout life and then you've lost that person um and that throws up all sorts of challenges and kind of looking at yourself and reflecting not only on the months or the the days or the hours that have been included in that loss but for years and perhaps a whole lifetime um which I think can just hit people like a wall sometimes when you're suddenly questioning everything about yourself and your existence you know from that loss. Thank you so for those who haven't heard the term complex bereavement before can you expand a little bit on what that means because there might be people who are dealing with it and don't know they're dealing with it. Um, I guess for me it's where something hasn't been quite straightforward so you've perhaps had a tricky relationship Um, or there's been um, dynamics that have been challenging throughout your time with that person or there hasn't been a relationship at all but by blood there should have been or it's all that sort of stuff so you kind of arrive at that loss but you've perhaps been grieving loss of relationship or potential for many years yeah that that's what it is to me thank you thanks that's really helpful Rosie thank you So for me, I struggled with complicated grief, which is similar around complex grief, really, in that it was prolonged. So I was stuck in a very kind of dark place, really, for a significant period of time due to the fact that my bereavements were unexpected. So they were a complete shock. My sister was only 30 when she died and it was really quite tragic circumstances. So for me, that really kind of knocked me it was completely unexpected and the period of of grief that followed was was really kind of complicated in that it was full of highs and lows 
I was crying quite a lot. I was disorganized and struggling with depression eventually was what I, I got diagnosed with. But it took a very long time for there to be acknowledgement of complicated grief and um, because um, it has to kind of, I think, be prolonged for at least six to eight months after the bereavement but it wasn't something that was openly recognized by my doctor they didn't really make the connection that actually I was struggling with complicated grief so it took a a very long time for me to be able to understand what was happening and I think that was the hardest bit was you know I, I, I really was all out of sorts because of my grief and and really struggling to know where to turn to. Thank you. It's helpful to have that explained as well, Beck. So we've had complex grief and complicated grief, which are terms that some of our listeners might not have heard before. Sarah, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, for me, it's sibling grief. And I noticed um, that it's not widely discussed. And what I mean by that is I lost my brother to brain cancer. And from the diagnosis to, to his death, was only 12 weeks and um, we went through that process of you step out it's like you step out of the world you go into the cancer world there was no hope as it were but we all lived in hope and I think a lot of that was um, to almost protect our mum who obviously was really struggling my nature is to become very proactive and, and sort things out. I'm the youngest of, of the three children. My brother was um, the middle child. We went through the hospice situation and we spent his last days with him there. And a blessing was that it was a peaceful death. The run up to it wasn't. It was horrific. So those images around times of anniversary, those images still don't change for me I still can get flashbacks to those times but for me what I noticed was and at the time I I, it's taken me about two to three years to even broach the subject because it felt like I was being selfish but nobody asked how I was everybody asked how my mum was and I think the suddenly being the youngest child I was catapulted into being the support for my mum now people might think well that's what people do and quite rightly but it was almost like I suddenly had to become a grown-up and even more of a grown-up and sort out the funeral because of her grief and I'm not taking away from what from one moment her overwhelming grief as a mother I'm not taking that away But over time, after the funeral, if I was ever with her or saw people, they would always say, how's your mum? Nobody asked how I was. And I found that really difficult. And instead of verbalising it, I didn't. I internalised it, which made me feel angry. And I felt as the youngest child, suddenly I became like a young child and I want, nobody was hearing me, nobody was seeing me. And I felt like I wanted to scream and say, hello, you know, hello, I'm here. You know, I'm grieving. My brother was my hero. He was my best friend. 
and he wasn't he wasn't here anymore and and also with friends they it was a significant bereavement and people didn't know what to say to me so rather than just offer a, a kind word they did the opposite and unfortunately some friendships failed as a result of of his death because I I I suddenly wasn't Sarah who they knew and could rely on and I went quite into my shell which is which isn't my personality but it was it was a very big struggle and I just felt completely lost uh, my sister had support from her husband and children but as a single person I was supporting our mum and as I said it, it I didn't actually verbalize that to my mum for about three years but I mean she took it she understood and actually she had noticed she had noticed I would be stood with her and people would say how are you and never to me. Thank you Sarah that's a really really powerful and touching story and it and it throws up a long list of things really that you touched on that people perhaps don't understand about bereavement and things that when you're bereaved you wish people would understand um so to just to bring my experiences into the room a little bit I've had a couple of experiences of um my own word is unspeakable bereavement so I lost my dad in a car crash a long long time ago 20 years ago and then a partner to suicide five years ago um, and the reason I call them unspeakable bereavements is because nobody knows what to say. So it can be a really lonely time because people just, they'll say a nice thing or two, but that you, it can be really lonely. You know, people don't actually cross the road when they see you coming, but you can feel a little bit like you don't want to bring someone's day down. So you feel quite lonely. But on the other side of the coin, I've also had an experience of what I might call a natural bereavement. So my grandma, who lived to be, uh, let's see, let me get this right, grandma, what, 86, <laughs> I think she was. <laughs> And um, I was her attorney. Um, so I was there at the end. I was there on the last day. Um, so she lived a very full and rich life and, and died um, of frailty of old age, quite naturally, um, had dementia towards the end. But uh, yeah, so and I noticed in that experience that people were much more forthcoming with their care and their concern. And because it was a, a narrative that people felt comfortable with, you know, we live a lovely long life and then we die with somebody we love sitting at our bedside. And of course, it's not always like that. So. Um, so I, I'm just going to open the floor now to some of the things that we wish people would would say or know about bereavement, about how to be around a bereaved person. Go ahead, Rosie. I think um, going back to what Sarah said, actually, that kind of really struck a chord with me about perhaps not making assumptions about how that person normally is. So if Sarah is normally someone who is an organiser and flies into, right, let's do that, which sounds like we're very similar, um, <laughs> And with uh, the person that I lost, you know, to organising things and supporting people, at some point you may very well go down in a heap. And I think sometimes there's that assumption that they're the strong person, they're the one that's organising and sorting and they're not in a heap crying. So therefore, they're fine. We can push them to one, not push them to one side, but we don't have to really seek and prod to see if they're okay because they're the kind of so-called strong ones when actually sometimes that's your kind of your protection and your defense mechanism is to fly into the tasks and be very orientated to get through the most difficult bits that you think are going to be the most difficult and then it's afterwards that you kind of just 
crash really by which time anyone who's not super close to you it's kind of old news for them and and there isn't that kind of follow-up really yeah that's something that I thought about when you were talking Sarah I guess for me it would be the notion that there's a time scale attached to grief that you that you should be feeling better within a certain period of time and, and it's something that's always frustrated me because grief is is permanent therefore the time scale is permanent so actually you know I think people mean well when they say in, in time you will feel better and there there is you know there is that there is truth in that but that's the worst thing and the last thing that you want to hear when you're in pain you're in deep deep sorrow and and time is irrelevant you know there were days that went past and I don't even know what I did that day or how I felt that day you know and looking back now you know I'm in a much better place and able to kind of reflect but at the time you know there are there is a lot of memories that I've lost because I can't remember what I did and so you know I think it can be unhelpful to say that that time is a healer because actually I there are days now where um, the the pain and sorrow is just as intense as it was when I found out that my mum and my sister died and I can quite easily go back to that place and be you know um, howling you know and 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 in in lots of kind of you know negative thoughts because it, there isn't a time scale you know and I and I've learned to kind of ride those waves and 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 you know if there's anything that I can kind of reflect on and is that you know I don't live by this notion that there's a time scale if I'm having a bad day I'm having a bad day and I think you know it's about communicating that to to people that actually you know and for people to accept that that's just because you're having a bad day around your grief not to try and fix it not to try and resolve it um not to try and tell you to get on with it you know oh, oh it's been five years you need to kind of let this go it, those are really unhelpful um phrases to use I think it's just sitting there and really being with that person or just asking them what do you need from me right now and you know that just shows that you're 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 there you're wanting to kind of listen um but yeah, my, my kind of advice would be don't don't live to a time scale when you're grieving. There is no time scale. You will experience ups and downs and that's OK. And that's completely normal. Lots of nods when you said about there not being a time scale. I think we all agree on that one. Sarah. I think the words as well move on. but <laughs> They echo in my head life goes on it's time to move on I don't think they're helpful statements at all um as Beck said there's nothing written in stone in how many days you should be grieving grief can be delayed there's different stages of grief but it doesn't mean to say you've got to reach each stage with within that time frame your whole identity as a person in whatever in whatever way you know whatever relationship you have with that um with that person changes the whole dynamic um your place within your the family changes you know and it's and it's a very odd place to be um everything changes from that moment um it's the it's the empty chair isn't it you just you know it it's just so hard and you know and as Beth said you could 
you know, it could be however many years on and you'll hear a song or a memory or there are now children in the family that my brother never met, um, which which feels really odd. You know, we still talk about him. He's very much still part of the family. But um, I think the part as well about old news, it's like, oh, yeah, Sarah's brother died. And oh, that's a shame. And, and now it's over. Um, and it's never over. It changes. But it's never over. Amazing. I was going to um, pick up on something as well about that kind of notion of trying to fix people. And I think I, I try and look at it in a from a kinder place than, than I did perhaps when I was receiving some of those comments. Just that I think if someone comes up to you, they wouldn't walk up to you if they had a broken hip, but someone rings you and says, I have a broken hip. Um, oh, my friend had a broken hip and uh, she had surgery. And within six weeks, she was up and walking. Do you want me to drop around some bread and milk for you? Or what can I do for you? It was very clear cut because actually it, it's clear that bone is broken. This is the treatment it needs. Boom, we can move on. We can have a bit of rehab. You can feel a bit shaky about walking down those stairs again, but that's it. And I think people naturally or most people naturally look to others and want to fix them um, because they care. Um, they, they want to fix. So as soon as you say something is broken or my heart is broken or I've lost somebody, they it's almost like people want to um, say, well, you know, that person was 92, so they lived a long life. To almost justify it and say, so it's okay, you don't have to be upset. To, to try and kind of justify and and kind of bring you to move on because it's kind of more comfortable for them. Whereas actually that's, it's quite hard work trying to fix people. And I think like everyone said, actually, just sitting with someone and saying, this is really, really hard. And actually, I don't know what to say for you, but I'm here to hug and actually I'm, I'm gonna cry with you because I'm really heartbroken for you. Is sometimes all that you need just to have someone who's gonna hold you, particularly if you're somebody who's been running around organizing and being that strong person. Uh, to have someone who's just there for you, no other agenda, but just to comfort and say, I'm here and this is hard and it's okay to just completely lose it or to not. Um, and I guess the other thing I was going to say was that that, that that kind of loss behavior and bereavement behavior can look really different for different people too. So it can look like collapsing on the floor and crying and, you know, feeling hysterical, feeling angry. It can also look like working too hard, uh, closing yourself off from family and friends. It can, with me, going out clubbing and boozing all the time. You wouldn't have thought there was anything wrong at all, but turning to that and kind of, uh, you know, going down a second wild stage in my life with that loss, uh, purely because life's too short. So if I get in debt, fine. Go out and get drunk again, third time this week, fine. Life's too short. And that kind of uh, defense mechanism as well to kind of shut things off. So yeah, the behaviors can look really different. You can, thanks Rosie. And I think, um, oh, this doesn't quite speak to what you said, but um, I want to say something about shock as well and how shock manifests differently in different people. Um, but that it has a function and it has a purpose. I remember once supporting a family member who'd lost somebody very close to them and she was desperately unhappy and, and wailing and, you know, she couldn't eat, she couldn't sleep. And I phoned her doctor and said, please, will you prescribe her something? I was really young. I was about 18 when this happened. Um, and the doctor said no. And I was quite shocked. I just wanted to ease their pain. My young self really wanted to ease their pain. But the doctor was absolutely right. You know, he could perhaps have medicated or tranquilized somebody for a few days but it still would have been there waiting for them when that medication wore off in the short term so I think 
as horrible as it is to go through the shock of the news that somebody close to you has died, I think there is a process. I think our brains and bodies do have a sort of internal wisdom. So, for instance, I, I didn't know that knees actually knock. <laughs> Once when, I, when I had some bad news and my knees were knocking and I remember looking down at them and laughing and going, oh, wow, it's true. Knees do actually knock when uh, when you've had bad news. So I think allowing yourself to, to trust your body and your mind in those first few days and let them do what they need to do is actually is actually really important. And that's when having somebody who's alongside you to sort of hold that space for you can be really, really helpful. I, I didn't realise how much physical pain mm. you would get with bereavement. I always described having it almost felt like something was stuck in my chest and, and if I could have just put something down to pull it out, it, it, it was this heavy lump of hurt and it was really physical. And that really frightened me because I didn't, I didn't know at the time how much, you know, how much grief the body can hold at that sort of cellular level. Um, and almost, I remember, um, two days after Steve died, um, I was in the supermarket and somebody accidentally nudged me with their basket. And, and I remember sort of spinning around and, you know, they might as well have just run me over. And I felt like I was made of glass. And I, and, and again, that those unspoken words, I wanted to scream at them. Don't you know, I'm, I'm, I'm full of grief. I'm, I'm hurting and you've hurt me. It was just this bizarre, you just feel that anybody, if they're going to just slightly tap you, that you're going to either fall apart and shatter. And I, and that was very, I knew about sadness. My, my father died when I was 13 and I knew that sadness, but the grief as I, into adulthood, adulthood, it changed. And for me, it was very physical. Yeah, your heart can actually hurt, can't it? You, Absolutely. Your yeah. heart feels broken. Yeah, it can be quite scary. Yeah, thanks for raising that. Go ahead, Bex. I guess um, it's important to kind of talk about um, the, the feeling of guilt, really, um, because that was very prevalent in my grieving journey. It still is. Um, you know, I had two multiple bereavements of two significant women in my life, and for a long time, I wasn't able to grieve my mum because I was still grieving my sister, um, you know, and, and that was really hard, you know, and I put a lot of pressure on myself that I, I kind of almost measured them, I should be grieving more or, you know, and, and I, that just really kind of magnified my grief because of the pressure that I was putting on myself to feel a certain way. Um, and that actually, if I put more attention into grieving for my sister, it meant that I didn't care as much for my mom and, and vice versa. And it was a horrible, horrible kind of um, experience that I really kind of put myself through. And I think guilt is something that, that lives with you. You feel guilty for feeling happy. You feel guilty for having a good day. Um, these are all kind of um, experiences that we find hard when we're grieving and you know, as I've kind of progressed in my grief journey, I, I, I accept that actually it's important to acknowledge the good days. It's important to, to, you know, be okay and feel happy and, and, and you don't have to kind of 
live your life in this deep, deep sorrow all the time. But it, it took a long time to get there and feel okay with that. And um, and I think that's because it's very individual and unique to each person's experience. Um, and what I would say, if anybody is experiencing that, then, then you know, that is completely normal. Um, but just be mindful that guilt's a really powerful emotion. And, um, you know, I think that's what... Um, got me stuck for a long time in, in in this dark place because I was feeling guilty about a lot of things things I should have said things I should have done things I didn't say didn't do um and and that was a really difficult time for me thank you Beth. Rosie I think um yeah that guilt is a really really heavy bag to carry isn't it quite often in the group I'll meet people who feel terrible they didn't they they hit every red red light on the way and they just didn't get there in time they weren't there to hold their husband's hand what must they thought of me and things like that and it's it's kind of been about sitting with them and talking about all their 76 years or however many years that they were there and that deep relationship and actually um, exploring that um, as opposed to those last few minutes because that that guilt of the things that you just can't change that were just the way it happened or that you just didn't get there in time because you were parking the car or because at the last stage it was really it went quicker than anyone expected or you know it was a call in the middle of the night and it took a while to get dressed because you were dazed and confused because you hadn't slept properly for weeks because you've been by the bedside or you know whatever um so I guess I've spent quite a lot of time with people just talking about all those times they were there and and also maybe reflecting on how we feel when we close our eyes. We don't know how it feels when when dying, of course, but when we close our eyes and think about our loved ones, they don't have to be in the room with us, but we can, in the same way that we can have all that pain from bereavement, we can have this lovely flow of warmth in our bodies when we think about people that we love. And I like to think that, that people towards the end of their lives, I like to think that that's what they're thinking of and that's what they're experiencing. I, that's what I like to think anyway. And Sarah? Um, I, I completely understand that feeling of, of guilt. It lasted um, a very long time for me. Part of my brother's legacy is what I do now. It put me in a position to be able to do that. Um, but that was, he, his, one of the last things he ever said to me was, if anything comes out of this, is I can help you to do what actually what your dream was and that's helping people and and that was awful because I sort of sat on that for about two years because how could I possibly in my head have a better life at his expense that's how that's how I felt um, and what I didn't ever say to anybody is on the last few days in the hospice there are certain things you have to do as a family to allow that person to drift away in a in a in a way that really doesn't get talked about um and the and there are documents involved in that and I was there on that day that had to happen and I felt that that I'd help that end come sooner and nobody ever spoke to me about it so in the end I thought it was my fault that when he did die the following day that somehow I'd instigated that and none of this this stuff ever gets ever gets raised and there's there's so much um so many little admin hurdles as well that you need to jump over after a bereavement when you're least equipped to do it you know things like um 
identifying a body you know that's something that you quite often have to do if it's been an unexpected death and uh, that's a very strange process to go through and there's there's no guidebook for that um registering the death at the registry office again there's no guidebook for that if you um you know your undertaker will usually be the person who, who talks you through it all but um yeah i'm just thinking and then there's the little things like the credit card bills that you weren't expecting and the pension that you've forgotten they'd had and letters that drop through the door a year later and you think oh is it still still going on yeah there's uh, there's just so much to do rosie did you have your thing left? yeah i guess i was going to say there's even in the in the nursing side of things when i've been nursing patients who've been dying back in my sort of ward days there's so much that people don't know uh, I remember working with someone once and this man had no family um, we come the ward staff kind of were his family he'd been a long time ward for a long time and uh, I remember a nursing assistant kept saying to me I'm watching you why, why do you keep giving him injections what's going on and I was like I'm trying to keep him as comfortable as possible because we know that he's on the end of life and that that's going to be happening soon but actually when his breathing's really bubbly I'm giving him an injection to drain some of that away but unfortunately the side effects of that injection makes him a bit more agitated even though he's he's not really with us so I'm trying to get that fine balance so that he's not struggling and yet he's not agitated so that he can just have peace and not not be feeling that and it's quite a fine balance sometimes but I think there it's only when you're in that room if you're a member of the family that that suddenly it's a whole a whole new world like you said Sarah when you're kind of transported into the world of cancer you're suddenly transported into the nursing world and you know what well why are you giving that then if it has that side effect and it's just it's literally the whole aim is to to achieve as peaceful a possible path for everybody uh, but obviously particularly for that person lying there and it, I think there's so much that people don't know and it's uh, it's a lot to take on I think at the time isn't it and a lot for I guess lay people for making decisions as well like you said Sarah to suddenly think you're being told or this this is what will happen it will be a b or c so you need to decide now and sign that piece of paper of how you want things to go and like you know I'm not trained for this I'm not I'm not qualified for this how can I make this decision it's yeah it's a really really tricky I guess bereavement has been higher in people's minds over the last year than it might ordinarily have been because we've all had to deal with um, COVID and lockdown and uh, being had this heightened awareness of looking after our mortality, you know, look at, looking after our, ourselves and uh, staying out of hospital. Um, and I wonder whether, I know there's nobody in this room that's had this experience, but whether we've got listeners who've maybe been bereaved during COVID and haven't had uh, access to some of the usual rituals and things that can help, haven't had people to, to hug and to hold, haven't had the funeral where everybody pays their respects. Anybody supported anybody through that? Yeah, go ahead, Rosie. Um, I've been helping out with a group. Um, well, I think it's across the UK, actually, some members from Australia as well, I think now. Um, hundreds of people who have lost people from COVID during the pan pandemic. And I think it's that it's that sudden denial of choice and um, being able to say, and, that, and that's whether someone has died of COVID or whether it's been something else, but there's been restrictions in place. Whereas normally, as I said, like the, the management is all about looking after that patient and the whole family and making sure that everyone's comfortable, everyone knows what's going on and as much as they can do when it's a, a clear sort of pathway, a kind of end of life pathway. And that's obviously what's what's been missing for the last year, hasn't it? That choice hasn't been there, that comfort being able to, to strike up a relationship with the care staff, for example, if they're in hospital 
or perhaps feeling that care was different because of restrictions and things like that so I think that raises other issues as well doesn't it about people feeling perhaps like they were cheated or that you know do I don't know the politicians what the politicians decided meant that I couldn't be there or whatever and I kind of just it just makes things even more more complex I think doesn't it but I think it's just that denial of of choice to be able to be there all night and all day or to play those favorite songs and to have all these restrictions in place to keep everybody else safe I think has uh, has had a massive impact on anyone who's lost in the last year. Thank you Rosie, well said. Go ahead Bex. I just think it's the, the the kind of mass loss that people have experienced really which is significant and and the the kind of mental health impact of that and 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 being isolated and not having those support networks um and and just the 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 strain on on the you know services that are out there for bereaved people that actually there really needs to be an investment in in better bereavement services you know for me I wasn't able to access bereavement support for at least I think it was six to eight months um, because of the waiting list um, and equally mental health um, you know waiting lists were equally as high and you're now looking at a mass kind of bereavement um, significance across the world really and just the impact of them being able to access support uh, and and I do you know I do worry that that there are going to be significant consequences of, of not having this available support for people that need it on top of being isolated on top of you know um, people losing their jobs and and financial restrictions that it that it is all gone you know it's all going to have a, a huge impact and it's really kind of important that we get out there you know what is available so that people can access that support when they need it because the timing has to be right yeah yeah good point about waiting lists Bex and I guess that moves us on to some of the changes that we'd like to see um, uh, on a sort of wider scale than things that we can do individually. So uh, something that springs to mind for me is um, in a case of a unspeakable death again, um, you have to deal with all of the medical and the, the registering and, and everything that you do with other kinds of bereavement. But then you also might have to deal with a Crown Court case. You know, there might be somebody who gets sentenced as a result of that death. There might be well, there almost certainly will be a coroner's court. There'll be an inquest. Um, so as well as getting your medical head on, you have to get your and your admin head on. You have to get your legal head on, too. And you might find yourself, you know, attending Crown Court for the first time in your life when, um, you know, you're, you're again, not really in a position, not not emotionally equipped to deal with all of that. So, so I think I'd like to see some some better liaison between uh, courts and coroners and families. And I think Sarah raises a really good point. I think often a certain member of the family is nominated as the one who is most grieving and it tends to be a parent or a spouse. When in fact, um, you know, there, there might be, that, that family might have already been fractured before the uh, bereavement happened and that there might be others who, who need to be supported through the process too. I um, So my sister's death resulted in an inquest which took um, between six to eight months and I don't think they really realize the impact that that has on families and I remember phoning and going you know what what's happening I need to know this is you know this is torture there was no support or consideration offered for for the the long time and period in which families are expected to wait for answers um, and I think there needs to be improvements around you know um, inquests and you know police investigations you know people 
rarely kind of consider the, the the emotional impact that that has to wait that significant length of time and you know and and we ended up phoning up ourselves you know there was no kind of regular check-ins to say actually just to let you know that there is a backlog we're trying to work through it you know to have no communication I think is just you know it just adds to people's stress in an, in an already difficult time um, so I certainly think that there could be a better communication um, um, system when when you are subjected to kind of inquests and things um, and just kind of being human you know actually recognizing that it's a difficult time already to then add time scales on that and and you know when when families are already questioning themselves about what's happened and what's gone on and you know just just there to be some better liaison or even signposting services that can kind of hold you whilst you're waiting for that inquest. Thank you thanks. Um, you've got me thinking now about I'm always create, creating projects and thinking of things that need to happen like what can we create that would do that no, I'm <laughs> I'll calm down I'm just thinking of a whole other CIC that we could make that supports people through, through I think it's a good idea you know absolutely I think you know I think families would appreciate being signposted to a service that can hold them provide safe space you know listening just acknowledgement from what they're going through I mean I run an online peer-to-peer support group so anybody can access there's no kind of you know um, restrictions other than it is for over 18s but essentially it's a safe space for people to come and talk about what's happening or you know to vent to kind of you know just ask for advice um, support um, so again you know it, it's really about looking what's out there and, and utilizing what you feel is helpful for you whether that's accessing counseling support whether that's taking up exercise whether it's attending groups um, listening to music reading you know there are so many different outlets and it really is sometimes a case of actually just giving something a try and, and finding out what works for you for, you know for me it was exercise but that was significantly down the line because I didn't want to do anything at first you know and and um, I wasn't motivated to go out and get support and I didn't really know where to go and then the first person that I turned to was my doctor who um, instantly wanted to medicate me and um, I couldn't even get a face-to-face appointment with my doctor to talk that through Um, so in terms of changes I think there needs to be some training or some better understanding around GPs in terms of the impact of bereavement and recognizing that a face-to-face appointment can be that really vital opportunity to get that person into the right support before their mental health significantly declines Um, I didn't feel I was given a choice. Um, It was medication or that's it. Um, And, um, you know, that upset me that I wasn't given that that opportunity to talk through what my options were. Um, So I think there needs to be improvements around um, information giving and certainly, you know, a face-to-face appointment is is a minimum thing that that surgeries could offer for people that are already going through really traumatic times in terms of their grief journeys. Mm. And that's something else that's been complicated through COVID, hasn't it? Just getting a face-to-face appointment for anything, even if it's a very, very physical condition. But I just wanted to follow on from what Beck said. There's, there's two bits in there that, I, that I'd like to pick up on. And one of them is that um, what somebody who's grieving needs isn't necessarily a grief service. It can be something like sport or craft or um, some thinking about the Devon Recovery Learning Community and how we offer um, not just things that are tailored to mental 
illness or to mental health, but that are kind of life enhancing because finding finding hope and meaning and purpose is just as important as focusing on your grief. So, you know, for me, it was carpentry. I took up carpentry after I lost my partner through the DRLC. And uh, it was the best thing I could have done to just go and chip away at a block of wood and make make something that was all um, rough into something smooth and beautiful was just the therapy that I needed. Um, and the other point is about medication. We talked a bit about um, whether we should medicate people in the immediate aftermath of um, a bereavement. But uh, there's that other piece, isn't there, when it becomes more longer term, is medication the right choice? And it's a very personal choice. It might be exactly right for some people, but for others not. Um, it's all about choice, which is another recovery value. I was just thinking about improvements and I was thinking, wouldn't it be lovely if in every town and not just in large towns, but in every town you had a little group of, I don't know what you'd call them, grief travellers or something who would be really well connected in their communities and be able to just meet that person whenever they're ready, whether it's in a cafe, whether it's in their home, to just put out there all the, the things that are available, but also just to offer that flat out, no agenda support and then be led by that person who's experienced bereavement. So whether it's to end up going to the gym or to going to Whittlesome Wood or just, just meeting up and having coffees somewhere quiet so that they can let the tears flow or be angry or whatever, it'd be great to just have a little cluster of community grief enablers almost who would, uh, so GPs could automatically refer and say, this is the number of that that little club that you need almost and uh, and they're there for you in whatever shape is needed I think also with the medication thing it's difficult because I think particularly if there's a if there has been quite a shock and things I've I've supported a few people who've had quite tragic um well horrendous horrendous grief and actually those first few days physically to to keep going without sleep and without eating and drinking because they weren't sleeping and things like that I think sometimes um people have have um had kind of more sort of sedating medication for a few days to just get that sleep so that the brain can switch off for a little bit and then switch back on again and, and carry on going. So I think I think all these things have their place, as as you said, down to the individual. Um, you know, if I if if someone like Sarah or I who's flying around doing everything and throw ourselves into tasks, obviously we we perhaps would be people who say, no, 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 I don't need that, I don't need that. But actually weeks down the line or months down the line when suddenly sleep becomes a real problem and it's a, and it's a real struggle to even put that effort in to try anything else um, first. I think sometimes it can be a little bit of a, a kickstart, can't it? But yeah, it's down to, down to the individual. Thank you for bringing that balance, Rosie. Really important to say it was very much an individual thing. And Sarah? Yeah, for me, um, I was diagnosed with reactive depression about a year after um, Steve's death. And I think that was trying to juggle the fact that also I'm a carer for our mum. You know, she's she is um, fairly independent, but she does have um, caring needs. And as Rosie said, I liken it to it's that endless plate spinning um, and being terribly busy is terribly good. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the plates crash or you just notice that, you know, I, I just need to stay in my cave where it's safe, um, you know. And now I know what I know as a result of, of qualifying as a therapist. It really makes sense. 
And I think, you know, some of the basic knowledge of how the brain works when we're in this grief state would be so valuable to people because, you know, there are days when you may sit back and say to yourself, I think I'm going mad. You know, the brain, <laughs> the brain just doesn't shut up and it tries to take you back to those horrific scenes or it, it, it's just a complete mess, isn't it? And also what also what Rosie said about grief enablers, you know, where we live, we you know, we've got beaches, we've got open spaces. And I would have loved to have just been able to sit with somebody and actually maybe that somebody that didn't know me. Because it just to sit with somebody and acknowledge I feel really rubbish today, but do you know what? That's OK. I might feel a bit better tomorrow. I don't need fixing. I don't need. I just need to feel the connection of another human being. And with what we talked about earlier about COVID, that really worries me as well, what we're heading into. It's that personal connection. And we've so underrated the value of touch. Just that hand on a shoulder or just, just that physical contact. And, and that does worry me for the future, for those families that have been bereaved in COVID that, the, you know, giving somebody a hug or just a pat, just an acknowledgement. And, and I, I think we, we need to look forward and say, right, it, the time's now. If we wait for other people to implement it, it won't happen. We know we're going into this um, crisis. And I don't say that lightly. There are a lot of people, I'm already seeing people that are really hurting as a result of social anxiety, nothing to do with bereavement, but it's there bubbling away. So yeah, I think we should all be enablers. <laughs> That's a great idea, Rosie. I love I love the idea of a, a, a traveling grief enabler. I think that's fantastic. It makes me think about when midwives used to move from town to town and be called on for their services. And, and that's reminded me of um, an innovative uh, thing that I heard about, which is doulas, a death doula. So we're familiar with doulas at birth. You know, they're not a midwife. There's something else. They're there to help um, support the parents through the birth. And uh, they're the ones who will be as happy to do the washing up as to hold a leg when the baby's arriving kind of thing. Um, and a death doula is for I think they're for the person who is dying more than for the family but they help people to have that um, as peaceful a passage as possible with choice as, as Rosie described to advocate for the person and all of that so so death doulas I wonder if we need sort of bereavement or grief doulas um, could be a way and the, the other thing that I'm fascinated by and I'd actually love to run one is a death cafe have you heard of a death cafe which is that, and what's really important about a death cafe is there's no agenda, there's no topic. It's um, you you simply hold one in a in a, a well a cafe or a community center um, and advertise it, and people can come and speak about whatever they like, whether it's their own death or a death that they've experienced, um, and uh, yeah, and they kind of leave it there in the room. So death cafes and death do death doulas, two ideas. On Rosie, I think when we're looking at improvements as well, I'd really like to see something that's really really available so it kind of you know slaps people in the face so if they know where it is so if your friend or your loved one is experiencing some sort of grief uh what can you do or you know just the things that take the pressure off you you don't you don't need to fix them you just need to be yourself and be with them and um I there's a friend of mine who had a, a tragic loss and we just met in a park the first time and we walked around in complete silence just crying both of us 
we must have walked around about seven or eight times just avoiding people eventually we sat on a bench shared about three sentences and that was it the first time the second time we met the following week we kind of walked around and we talked a little bit more um and it kind of culminated in me dropping off a very large amount of cheese to her back door um, because it was close to Christmas at this point. And um, that was all she could imagine doing at Christmas was just, I'm just going to eat cheese. So um, that's, that's what she needed. So she got cheese and she got abnormally large crackers as well. And it's just kind of maintaining some of that friendship and that relationship you have. So if it has humor or whatever it has, don't don't forget that you don't you don't need to fix. You don't need to storm in and fix it and say, well, you were angry yesterday. So that's the next phase that we can we can tick that off. Now you're going to start feeling, you know, or you're, you're you, that's you're in denial. Now we can tick that off and move in. We don't have to be experts. The only thing we're experts in is our relationship with that person. And that is that could be really, really critical. And I'd, I'd love to see some sort of online video or something that can be sent out to everybody that person knows when they lose someone to be able to say you know you don't you don't need to fix and here's where you can go for other other support and things if you need it but actually all you need is you and and your relationship um yeah love that Rosie maybe we should turn this podcast into a short video <laughs> I'll be calling on you all again in a couple of weeks and saying can you just <laughs> get your get your best hat on and we'll make a little video together <laughs> go ahead Sarah I just had this vision then of of um, my friend just knocking the door with tissues, hobnobs, and a bunch of flowers, <laughs> and it was it was just thank goodness <laughs> that's it, that's what it was. We didn't talk about you know I wasn't at the stage I could even get out the door that day, but we just sat and I cried and she listened and then we ended up talking about something else completely different. Because again, I think people worry that if they come and see you, that's all you're going to talk about. But actually, you know, there are bits of bits of the day that you, you don't talk about. You might just talk about something really random. And I just think people think they're going to be suffocated in your own grief. But I think as a community, we could support people so much better because we, whether we like it or not, in whatever vein it's going to happen, we are all as human beings going to experience bereavement. And at the moment, I think it's one of the last bastions that's just don't talk about it or what do we do? Because people still feel so, you know, de-skilled or equipped and you don't have to be trained in it. It's about compassion and being just another human being. And, and it doesn't have to be any harder than that. We need to. And, and again, like you said about, you know, midwives, it's just such a nice idea where people can just come together and sit. And actually, you don't want to talk about the horrible stuff all the time. You know, there are moments that, it, that that you want to talk about. You know, you might get a good memory. And actually, you know, it's nice to speak the person's name. They were part of our lives. They lived. They were a huge part. And they are still part of you. They're not, they haven't gone any, you know, they've gone, but they're in you. Um, and later on, you know, if, if I say, oh, my goodness, my brother would have said that. Again, I still see people sort of think, oh, my God, she's mentioned him, you know, and I will. And I will go on because he was my brother. And, you know, he is still my brother. But again, that's about when you when things start to change never in a million years would I have thought a couple of years ago I would have been sat on a podcast today feeling the way I do talking about his passing and him as a person 
without bursting into tears. And that's not to say there won't be moments later today where I will have a quiet moment to reflect on what we've done today. But it just goes to show to anybody that's listening, you evolve through grief at your own pace, at your own time. And that awful gut-wrenching feeling changes. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Um, yeah, I think the models of grief, there's there's some different stages of grief, aren't there, that you're meant to move through from kind of denial to bargaining to resolution. And then there's another one, which is an archway of grief, which suggests that you kind of go down a roller coaster to a really deep place and then come up out the other end. Um, but the one I found most helpful, and I did a video about it, which I'll, I'll share with the podcast, is the, the spiral. I mean, I don't think any model's right for everybody, but that's the one that makes the most sense for me, is that you start when, when you're first bereaved, you start in the middle of the spiral and um, you don't know which way to turn, but it gets bigger and bigger. And so you walk the path and you just kind of go round and round. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's 21 years since I lost my dad. And sometimes I find myself thinking, oh, not this again, you know, not these tears again. Where are they coming from? I should be over it by now. But it's just that I've, I've hit that bit of the spiral again and I'll keep going. And, and you don't get past it, but you do sort of move forwards. I mean, like time does only go in one direction. So you kind of have to go forwards with it. Um, but yeah, I quite like the grief spiral as a model. I think also what what you've both said actually what changes sometimes is what there's something that grows in you so um initially it's that 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 grief that gut-wrenching all the physical stuff and just the despair I think over time however long that is what can grow in you is that sense of what's still in you from that person like you were saying Sarah so you know that that complex loss uh actually that person was amazing at telling at telling stories and tales and like engaging people with a pub type tale so am I that's what I get from them and you know or sense of humor or whatever or that thing you know Sarah when you're doing all sorts of things and and feeling strong that day it might be a strength that you think this is because of the legacy of my brother or whatever and it kind of that it just can build in you and and kind of ground you I guess it's in a very a very strange sense because that person is not next to you but um the, the things that they left in you um and the things that that you kind of take from them I think is something that can carry on growing even though they're not around yeah so true and it's lovely when um you start to have memories of them and they make you smile and the tears don't come that's a really lovely moment and that goes backwards as well because the next day the memories will come and the tears will come with them but but yeah, I think for me, it's always been around sort of the two year mark once I've got through the first round of anniversaries and then the second round of anniversaries and beginning to get a bit of distance. It's different for everyone, but I often hear people say two years is about the time when uh, they started to you know, go a whole day without being in bits about the person that they'd lost and, and things start to change. How about in your group, Bex? Is there, are there any sort of common themes or? I think um, that, that, everybody grieves differently um you know and and that we all have different ways of coping and um you know and and, and the importance of you know some people share the importance of, of having hope and and you know that they are in a place where they are having more good days than bad days and and you know the, the experiences are really different because people are 
on different stages of their grief journey so we might have people that join who who are very new to their grief journey and you know are are wanting to just share that 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 kind of deep sorrow that they're in and and get some kind of um just acknowledgement that that that's normal um where other people are um further down the line and and talk about you know um how they're able to to share those happy memories how they're able to listen to the songs you know at one point I couldn't listen to a certain song that was played at the funeral and every time it came off I would switch the radio off you know because I just couldn't cope but now I am I'm much better and you might even hear me sing along to the tune sometimes so you know there really is progression some days and and the group is just a really varied group of of individuals that have all experienced loss but there's not one of them that would tell you that you need to feel a certain way they're all really supportive and and they're really kind of empathetic towards each person's journey um so I think that's that's good sometimes because you can't have those conversations with your family or your friends or your loved ones because it often comes loaded with you know with to do things to do or have you tried this or you know whatever whereas when it's a group of people that you don't know you can feel a little bit more confident in opening up and I think that's the beauty of belonging to um, a group like loss is that you're not going to be judged in that environment and speaking to people outside of your family sometimes is a way to process your grief without impacting on theirs like Sarah you did touch on something that I think is a bit of a taboo which is that there's a pecking order for grief and that within a family, you're, somebody else's grief is more important than yours. Whereas if you're in a group of strangers, then you're just you and you, you'll be accepted as you are. So it can be a, a really helpful addition to, to family support. Yeah, and I guess that's what we offer in our in our group, which is just about to uh, start face-to-face meeting again, which is just that tea, coffee, hot chocolate, a good biscuit, a very good biscuit, Sarah, because <laughs> uh, that's very important. And just that space where nobody has an agenda that's linked to you so there's I'm not going I feel kind of quite tearful a lot of the time when lots of people are talking because it's you know there's an awful lot of hurt in the room um but where people can explore that loss of identity and and realize that perhaps there are other people in the group who have had similar feelings too and and just talk through them not fix them but just be able to talk through them without someone who has a kind of vested interest in you like a family member saying come on now mum you need to pull yourself together dad wouldn't have wanted this he would have wanted to stiff up stiff up stiff up a lip or you know whatever um to just be able to be yourself and let it out and have that safe space for a couple of hours where you don't you don't have to worry about what you're saying to other people or fearful of what they might say to you if you've got kind of a bit of family kind of uh, treading on eggshells and things it's it's such a human experience isn't it bereavement and that last point that Rosie made about um being alongside people who've had a similar experience to you you'll never have exactly the same experience as somebody else um but knowing that those moments when you think you're going mad those moments when you think it's never ending those moments when it just seems to keep coming back round and round are actually really common human experiences um it's really really valuable so to anybody who's listening to this, I'm sure you'll be wondering where you can get an experience like this. So I'll invite each of you to just say how people can get in touch with your groups and your services. So Rosie, do you want to go first and say a bit about Roots? Yeah, so uh, one of the projects that we run as Roots Community Enhancement is Waves Bereavement Group, which is a monthly group 
um, that runs at their manor house in Dawlish. It's open to anyone from Dawlish, Tynmouth, surrounding villages. We're not too precious about the geography of it, though. There's free parking. It's the last Thursday of every month from 10.30, normally for an hour and a half. And it's just that free time to just chat, vent, or just to listen to other people. Um, Or we might might talk about different themes if, if people are... Uh, are up for that um we had we do have resources and things if people need signposting to different things if they do need help with things and then we tend to finish with a good 15 20 minutes of kind of a grounding guided relaxation so that once you've kind of stirred up all those all those emotions and things you're not just kind of unleashed into the car park and left so um yeah anyone's welcome they can get in touch by um emailing admin at rootscommunityenhancement.org get in touch with us on facebook um or find us through volunteering and health or through, through a GP. Thank you, Rosie. Great. Bex, can you tell us how people can get in touch with LOSS, please? Yeah, so um, LOSS um, is an online um, peer-to-peer support group on Facebook. So um, you can type in LOSS, which is losing our sense of self. I'm happy to share the links with you um, so that you can share those um to anybody that needs them Uh, we've also recently um, published a self-help guide so we received some funding for um, the production of a self-help guide which has got lots of articles that have been written by um, counsellors mental health practitioners people who have been on their own bereavement journeys um, and lots of different kind of articles in there about grief and anger um, grief in the brain grief in your mental health and fitness some really useful articles calls that hopefully um, will resonate with some people um, around you know understanding their grief better um, so um, again I will share the link with the with UM so that you can share that if anybody would like a copy to be sent out to them. That's really generous thank you Bex it sounds like a kind of online version of our traveling grief supporter person. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah so absolutely. Into one document that's lovely. Thank yeah you. thanks Bex. And Sarah, how about you? Yeah, so um, I'm in private practice. I have a practice, um, my own practice in Paynton. Um, I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and counsellor. And I don't want people to be alarmed by that. So I've actually studied, so what's, what makes it clinical? So I've actually studied um, the brain. So I'm qualified in neurology. Um, and just how the brain works, as I said earlier, really, when we're feeling anxious or depressed, um, and how the grief brain works a bit differently to um, to what we would normally expect to see, really. People can contact me, email me at sarah at evolve-hypnotherapy.co.uk. And I also have um, some subsidised places um, so people can come and see me as well. Um, any consultations with me are complimentary and even if you just want to sit and have a chat and not have you know therapy (laughs) as it were I wish we could find another word for it you just want to sit and have a chat or just talk about that loved one then that's fine by me again I don't have any rules in my room it's just how you are on that day thank you well thank you to all three of you for offering such fantastic services and for taking a bit of time out of them to come and talk with the recovery Devon team today I really really appreciate it Uh, what I thought I might do is ask each of you to say is there one thing that you would say to somebody who's who's grieving right now is there one message that you'd like to leave them with so I would say to anybody who's listening who's struggling with grief and to to be brave enough to seek out some help 
to tell somebody tell somebody that you're struggling and if, if you can't think of anyone then get in touch with us at recovery devon and we'll find somebody in your area who, uh, who you can talk to i think i would um say to people don't be afraid to, to cling to somebody find someone that you can cling to someone who's going to hold you um and kind of walk with you on your grief journey thanks rosie um, I guess for me, the message that I would like to get across is that your grief journey is your grief journey. It's very unique to you. And don't compare yourself to other people who are on their own grief journey and really concentrate on where you are and where you'd like to be. And don't put that any pressure on yourself and, and really just be kind and take each day as it comes. Thanks, Bex. And Sarah? Yeah, I'd like to say even on your darkest days and you think there's no hope or there there's nobody around just by the very nature of this podcast today there are people who genuinely care about you and want to support you through this um, and there is light on that very dark moment in your life that the light will return and it gets easier but give yourself time thank you and goodbye. Beautiful. Ah, oh, I'm going to stop recording now. <laughs> that was lovely, Sarah. <laughs> A nice little end. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you have ideas which explore mental health directly or in imaginative ways, perhaps you'd like to create our next podcast. If you don't know how or don't have any equipment for recording, we'll do what we can to help. Simply contact us. Our email is community at recoverydevon.co.uk. Recovery Devon is a community interest company supported by the Devon Partnership Trust.